1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology with books on Aging in the Life Course on the New Books Network. Today, I have with me Paul Howe, professor of political science at the University of New Brunswick, whose new book, Teen Spirit, How Adolescents Transformed the Adult World, just came out from Cornell University Press. Hi, Paul.
0: Hi, Michelle. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Teen Spirit, in the book's intro, you say you started researching decline in voter participation and ended up here, far from your home base of political science. Can you tell us a bit more about the path by which you ended up writing a book about the influence of adolescence?
0: Yeah, uh, it began uh, back probably, oh, could be 15, even 20 years ago. I I had an interest in questions around democracy, uh, democratic engagement, voter participation specifically. So I was working in that area, and uh, eventually I pulled my thoughts and I researched together and and published a book uh, that was on the theme of of declining uh, political engagement in Canada and other places, uh, especially among, among younger generations. Um, But in the course of doing that research, I, like I think some other political scientists felt and sensed that we weren't really just talking about a political phenomenon here, that that this was kind of wrapped up up as well in uh, in different kinds of social and cultural uh, developments. Um, and and in particular, there was there sort of a rising sense of individualism in society that had had precipitated and given rise to changes in how people chose to to participate politically or or not to um, and the manner in which they did so, or for some to kind of actually sort of pull away altogether and just not be bothered with staying on top of public affairs or or voting. Um, so I'd always had this kind of interest in these broader this broader perspective, which. Can take you into a bit more of an interdisciplinary perspective. You are moving outside the bounds of just just political uh, political science, um, but something else too that that came out of that that research was um, it was about generational change and about changes among younger rising generations, which had been taking place. I felt for you know quite a number of years, even even decades. Um, so it's about that kind of long term uh, trend. Um, but I also was aware that on some of these measures of political interest and, and how much somebody wanted to discuss politics with their friends or people around them, there were also some very striking differences between adolescents and adults. Um, I sort of stumbled upon some of these things when I was looking at, at some of the trends and some of the data. Um, and, and that sort of in the, towards the end of the book I wrote on, on political disengagement, I sort of flagged as an interesting little idea the question of whether or not we might trace some of the generational changes we'd seen to, to adolescence itself as being sort of a source of those changes, that, that things happening in the adolescence and how people come of age as adults, how that could then impact the kind of adults they, they become. Um, but the idea wasn't so fully developed really in that in that book. But that then, after I finished that one, and this was now 10 years ago, it was in my head that I wanted to do something broader around how adolescent and the adolescence experience, um, had had, uh, effects on the adult world. And, and again, moving beyond politics as I do in the, in teen spirit to talk about broader impacts on, on a whole range of different aspects of, of modern life.
1: I have to say your book had immediate appeal to me. And it's one of those ideas that once you hear it presented, you look around and it just has that resonance that you start seeing signs of it everywhere. (laughs) So um, your book's premise, you summarize it really well in the first chapter where you uh, say, and I quote, uh, the general idea is that modern society has become more adolescent because of important changes in individual character brought about by immersion in a society of peers during the teen years, uh, end quote, uh, meaning in, during high school. So um, what does it mean to say we've become more adolescent into adulthood? And, and how does that juxtapose with acting like an adult?
0: Yeah, so there's, uh, what, I, what I focus on in the book um, is I talk about the idea of, of character, the type of character that people have, the kind that they, they have in adolescence and the kind they have in adulthood, but also then, of course, how these things have changed over the course of time, um, especially in adulthood, the kind of character that ad- adults have. Um, and so that's a term, the phrase character um, I, I, what I'm, what I refer to to get in when I get into more detail is I'm talking specifically about both the, the personality traits that people actually have, the kind of person they are in terms of personality, um, and also about some of the, the values that they, they adhere to. Um, and on the personality side of things, what I, uh, what I focus on is a, a typology that's been used by, per, uh, psychologists who have studied personality for many years and they've developed, you know, said, how can we sort of categorize or talk about personality? Uh, They came up with something they call the big five typology, which is the idea there are sort of five broad categories or important dimensions of personality when we want to understand, you know, what an individual is like or what different groups are like. Um, And so a couple of these that I suggest are... um, have an adolescent quality to them are in the area of conscientiousness being a conscientious individual someone who's kind of disciplined likes to follow the rules likes to persevere at things i suggest that adolescents tend to be relatively low on conscientiousness Um, and so when i say that you know adults have become more that way over time because of the impact of adolescence i'm saying yeah that adults themselves then have shown diminished conscientiousness over the course of, of, of a long time as these adolescent traits have had more impact. Um, I talk also about agreeableness, being an agreeable person, someone who you know, gets along well with others, but also in, when situations get tense, they don't fly off the handle, that's to be more agreeable. And again, here what I say is that adolescents tend to be sco- score relatively low on that, that trait. Um, and so, so conscientiousness and agreeableness, I say that adolescents score kind of low and then, on a couple of other traits, uh, including extroversion, which is partly about being an outgoing, gregarious person, but also about kind of pursuing the uh, enjoyable, uh, fun aspects of life. Uh, excitement seeking is what the psychologists sometimes call it, that adolescents score especially high. Um, and so, and then also with respect to openness, which is another of these big five traits. Adolescents also score quite high in terms of being interested in diversity of experience and emotional experiences um, and these kinds of things. So what I these are some of the personality traits I suggest that when people have spent more time amongst adolescent peers, as we started to do back in in the past, that these traits became a little bit more deeply entrenched. Um, And so what happened was that as we moved on to adulthood, those traits kind of came forward with us. Um, so we became less agreeable, less conscientious, but also more extroverted and more open. Um, and then over on the value side of things, what I the way I kind of encapsulate uh, the value changes is to suggest that we've sort of just become more individualistic in a whole host of different ways. And that really ties back a lot to those personality traits. If somebody is less conscientious, they're not as interested in following the rules and the norms that society sets for them. They're more individualistic. If they're uh, extroverted and they like to pursue things that are fun and enjoyable for them, that's more of an individualistic uh, tendency as well. Um, Openness as well uh, also implies that you're, you're more interested in individual diversity and difference rather than everybody being the same um so so those are some of the value changes that i see also connected to well that are that are strong in adolescence these are some of the value propensities and therefore these are some of the changes i see taking place over the long haul in adulthood
1: so there's there's it sounds like there are two trends um i'm not a psychologist but i did look up the big 5 personality traits and as i was reading about them in your book And it sounded like they tend to be stable for individuals over time, but it sounds like you're saying, you know, whatever your level on those is, in your teen years, it tends to be higher on um, extroversion and openness and lower on conscientiousness during that period of time before you reach adulthood but then there's a second trend that's more global. That's we're moving as a society to value some of those things more and um, emphasize them more. Is yeah, that, that, right? that
0: captures it, it, it well. Um, it is there is this idea, yeah, that definitely there's a, a, a pattern that takes place over the course of an individual's life, um, which where they do move from being you know, um, a less conscientious teen, for example, to being a more conscientious adult. And that that's driven by changes in our life circumstances, you know, general ma- maturity, biological sort of change. So that's part of what has, has always happened and will, will always happen in the future. But as you say, overlaid on top of that, I'm suggesting that Yeah, but at the same time, people tended because of this new adolescent experience that we had where we're surrounded by peers and these traits are becoming more deeply embedded uh, to be to be to become especially even less conscientious, say, than than uh, than we would have been historically as as adolescents. And therefore, those tendencies then have kind of we carried them forward to adulthood to some degree, even as we kind of, you know, experience some of the traditional changes associated with becoming a more mature, mature adult.
1: Yeah, I thought that part of your book was really interesting. That idea that um, moving, transitioning from teen years to adulthood and taking on adult values and responsibilities and character uh, wasn't a given. And um, you you also uh, remind us that high school is a modern phenomenon. It's 20th century and... Um, you, you talk a little bit about the history of high school. Um, why, why did you choose to include that uh, detail about the history of high school? Why is it important to your argument?
0: Well, yeah, it is. In many ways, it's, it's sort of at the heart of the argument um, because, you know, the, the creation of high school and in particular, the idea that, that everybody would go to high school, um, was was what sort of created this the, the modern experience of adolescence? It's it's at that point that young people through their teenage years start to spend a lot more time connected to and surrounded by teenage peers, um, and so and then that has these as I'm suggesting these kind of very important social effects on the kind of people that we that we become. Um, and, and of course, but of course it wasn't always the case that people went to high school. Of course, a long time ago, people didn't go to school at all. And then primary school became, uh, more, much more common and people would go to school and finish at ages, say perhaps 12 or, or so. And then they'd be out in the working world or working on the farm or whatever it might be. Um, but around the start of the 20th century. Um, and especially in the United States, which was kind of the pioneer in this uh, as part of the, the progressive movement that, uh, at that time, which was aiming at all sorts of social and political and economic change to try to improve American society. Um, one of the measures that came out of that was the idea that, that, uh, that everybody should go, should try to create high schools that everybody could, could attend. Um, and so when you look at the, some of the numbers, you find that uh, around the year 1910, you had, uh, I think it's something like about 15% of American teenagers, say between the ages of about 14 and 17, uh, were, were in high school. But this this rapidly progresses over the next two or three decades. Um, so by the time you get to 1940, you've got a little over 70% of American teenagers are are in high school. Um, so, yeah, so this is... Pre- it... Sorry, I'm go sorry. ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh,
1: I think we forget how recent a phenomenon high school really is, uh, for everyone. This, um, thing that we take for granted now that everyone should complete high school. And, um, you know, we, we forget that that wasn't true a couple of generations back.
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and, um, Uh, You know, and so traditionally, which the book doesn't focus so much on what life was like before that, but essentially it was the idea that, you know, you you got to around age 11, 12, 13, um, and you kind of transitioned into adult society immediately. You didn't have this intermediate period, this period of pause where you you stayed with adolescent peers primarily for a period of, say, four or five years. And now that's what, what was put in place in the early years of the 20th century. Um, and it created a, you know, a very different social dynamic for a young person. Now they're surrounded by adolescent peers and they're taking an awful lot of cues and influence from those peers. And it's, it's starting to shape both the kind of person that they are and also I, uh, something else I talk a bit about in the book is also a sense of the kind of person they want to be. Um, what, what's their sense of the ideal uh, person I would like to be? Um, and, and the teen years are very important for, for, for that um, it's in the teenage years that we're developing that sense of identity, uh, sort of a sense of, of adult identity. It's kind of provisional at that point, but we're starting to get a feel of who do I want to be as I as I mature into an adult. Um, and so that now, once adolescence uh, through the high school experience became part of, of life for people, that's now taking place in a, in a social setting where you're, you're surrounded by teenage peers. So that's that's a very important historical change. Um, in terms of socialization experiences for, for people.
1: I I really have to say I found that part of your book very satisfying because I think you raise a few points that are um, just really well done. And one is that idea that, of course, this has had um, a cultural effect and, and it, it's an unintended consequence of what the actual goals of high school were. And second, the idea that high school, we've we've long recognized that there are peer pressures and other aspects of adolescence that are effects at that time. But as you bring up in the book, we don't really look that much on how that is affecting um, people into adulthood. And so it, it seemed to make observations that were both unique and also felt um, very uh, uh, obvious gaps in kind of how we think about these things. And so I I appreciated that. Now, you mentioned at a few key points in the book that many of the societal and political trends um, that you talk about in Teen Spirit, others have described. And you mentioned many other factors that uh, these trends of individualism and, and um, even narcissism and, and uh, other such traits are attributed to everything from, you know, our movement into our urban areas to um, capitalism and mass media. What made you confident that your argument about the effects of adolescence and their continued influence into adult life was really the the primary uh, driver of social change, rather than these other things.
0: Well, I think that I uh, the way I chose to present the argument was to say, "Look, here is another way of looking at things," um, and to sort of say, you know, unpacking something that really hadn't been explored um, previously. Um, I, I I would say that. Um, that, you know, the, and the case I make overall, I would say you could call, call it almost a circumstantial one. Um, there's no sort of smoking gun to be. It was to say, look, above and beyond these these other kinds of factors that people have looked at, it's it's adolescence that's really the key driving force. So I wouldn't I wouldn't push it it, it quite that strongly, um, but I would say that. Um, you know, I hope that the circumstantial case that I build is 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 persuasive, and, and so that people would read it and think, "Well, yeah, this this probably is a, a pretty important factor in terms of understanding how uh, society has evolved over the last uh, over the last century, really, um, and explaining sort of the kind of people we are today and the kind of society that we that we have." Um, But, but I would still, I would, you know, I certainly acknowledge that there's, there's other things that have, have, you know, had impact over time. Um, I wouldn't want to present just kind of a a mono, mono causal uh, argument. Um, But I would raise the question with some of them, that we can ask whether or not they're actually things that are driving social change, or whether they're more reflections of social change. So if you look, for example, at the nature of, of modern day, the modern day economy and the big emphasis on consumerism, um, which some some will say on the one hand, well, that's kind of we've been we've been conditioned by by advertising and, and so forth to to want certain things and to be people who like to consume a lot and sometimes c- consume too much. And that can create problems in our own personal lives and, and so forth. Um, but, but I would say on the other hand, but, or is, is, is the way we act as consumers in a way that's maybe not fully adult-like to use my language and maybe more the way an adolescent might in a more impulsive sort of manner in terms of our purchases, um, is, 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 is what we see, is it more a reflection then of, of social and cultural change that's been driven by, by other things. I mean, these are, of course, these are always going to be incredibly complex questions around cause and effect and, you know, what's what's a symptom and what's a, an actual driving force behind things. Um, so so I kind of, you know, I kind of put my book out there as 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 certainly, I think, a different perspective on things. And as I say, I hope that it stands up well alongside some of the other you know, main theories and ideas about what's been driving social change over over the long haul.
1: I am, it's also an interesting, complex argument because, um, a generation of people has to go to high school, then it influences them, then that influence maybe reflects on their own, uh, children. And then that generation also goes to high school. But I was kind of curious, um, if there's a point, uh, where this trend is really, you know, most evident? And um, is there a point where it's, uh, the focuses is uh, college, why not focus on college rather than high school? Or is there a point where college kind of takes over the role that high school played in the past? Or do you think it's still um, developmentally uh, high school age?
0: Yeah, that's that's a, that's certainly a good point, um, and and maybe you're picking up a bit because I don't talk as much about college. Maybe picking up a bit on something that I'll I'll put in the second edition of uh, of teens teen, teen <laughs> spirit. Um, but I do think, I mean, high school is important because the goal and eventually the reality was that this would be kind of a universal experience for for young for teenagers that they would go to high school, and so everyone would be exposed in this way. And so, so, and historically, you know, we certainly came close to that and that's why it had such sweeping, I say such sweeping impacts on, on, you know, the socialization experience for young people, um, and, and the kind of adults that, that people started to become. Um, I, I do think you could, you could obviously for a lot of years, you college remained a, you know, something that was more for a relatively small and elite group of, in society, um, so it wasn't having nearly the same wide impact. But I think one could certainly make the argument that for those who did have that experience, who had gone through high school and, and then into college, that one that the same kind of phenomenon would continue to occur, that the kind of qualities and, and traits that they expressed as young adults would sort of become more deeply entrenched in a way in those young adults. And then they might, again, sort of carry that forward with them. Um, but it becomes a more it has to become a more nuanced and qualified kind of argument because, as I say, it's just not impacting as many people. And also, you know, in college now you are a little bit older, so you' maybe the, the qualities and traits are not quite so sharply defined uh, as they are, you know, for teenagers who clearly are you know very different from adults. So So I think there's a number of reasons why it kind of makes sense to talk primarily about the high school experience, but I think one can certainly, Attack on some additional, you know, reinforcing effects that would have come out of the college experience for, for young people. And of course, over time, more and more young people do go to college and, uh, and there might be certainly be room to talk about the 1960s as being a time when it almost, a lot of this stuff maybe jumps up into the college level as well, because we have such a, a strong youth generation in a sense, which has a certain sense of identity and, and youthful qualities are kind of flourishing like crazy in the 1960s um, through all the various kind of movements and so forth of those of that decade.
1: Yeah, it definitely prolongs the exposure to peers over a longer period of time, which seems like it could um, support that argument that that's very developmentally important to people deciding who they are and who they want to be as an adult and, Establishing those peer groups that um, you're going to be trying to impress for the rest of your life, maybe, or um, you know, in reference to. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, so, I think you put it well. So those are that's certainly a good additional observation. That uh, as I say, maybe for a second edition.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So uh, tell me how, a little bit about how you wrote this book. How how did you pursue this idea and. What was your approach to your research?
0: Um, well, it was a little bit unorthodox. I mean, as, as listeners may have already gathered, I mean, this book is covering quite a bit of territory. And um, as I say, I started off in the territory of political science, but I found myself working and uh, trying to learn more about different aspects of, of psychology and also uh, sociology Um, and so what I found to be helpful for me was when there were certain big ideas I wanted to kind of know more about. Um, and, and I found that some of the, the work that, um, scholars have sometimes written to kind of popularize their work. So they've written a book that's meant for a wider audience. I found these to be kind of a very good entry point for me to start to get a sense of what the thinking is in a certain area. Um, and then from there to kind of dive down a bit more into the scientific articles uh, that, they, that they themselves or others in their area had, had published. Um, so, for example, I, I mentioned near the start, um, I said that, you know, when I was doing my work on, on democratic disengagement and I was thinking about that as reflecting uh, a culture that had become more individualistic over time, um, I, I came across the work of Gene of Jean, Jean Twenge, who's a, a social psychologist. And she had written a couple of popular books. Uh, one was called Generation Me. Um, and then a second one she followed up with was called, um, um, actually it's escaping me. It's, it's with nar- the narcissism ep- epidemic. That's what it was called. Um, in any event, it was in those books that she outlined. Uh, she, in the, this idea that, that both individualism and even at extremes, narcissism has become more prevalent among in society and in younger generations in particular. But she linked that uh, in her scientific work, especially to, to changing personality traits in the population. So she talked about big five personality traits in her work, like conscientiousness and, and extroversion and these sorts of things. So for me, that was kind of a, a light going off, uh, uh, you know, this idea that you could connect what we sometimes think of as cultural or social change to actual what's happening at the level of personality. Um, and so from there, then, as I say, I explored more into the, the scientific, uh, literature. Um, another book that was, was kind of helpful for me, um, was, was one by, uh, a Judith Harris. It's called the nurture assumption. And it just summarized, um, some of the thinking around in the field of psychology around the socialization process and how personality takes shape. Um, and in particular, the, the relative importance of parents versus peers. And, and it, so it's really helpful for me and sort of, you know, again, another light went off. And, uh, and from there, I kind of dived deeper into the, the relevant uh, scientific literature. So that was kind of a method that ended up playing out in a, a number of places. And then as you, as you know, in the book, there's also some, some of my own kind of analysis, trying to capture uh, various social and cultural trends over time, over the long haul, trying to trace generational change. So for that, that was kind of a whole other method of analysis, using you know some of the things I might do in political science, using certain um, databases on on social and cultural uh, values that people have, and looking at how those have have changed over the course of time.
1: Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. So in the you 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 lay the groundwork for your argument in the first part of the book, but then you spend the second half of the book really talking about how does this affect society what are the outcomes that have resulted from this cultural shift and this effect of adolescence um, spreading into uh, adult territory so let's talk about some of the outcomes you describe in your book you uh, let's start you don't see it as all positive or negative but let's start with some of the downsides what are some of the problems that have resulted from this from your point of view?
0: So, uh, yeah, that's where I kind of start off when I'm talking about what's the impact. And and so one of the things I do talk about is just the general sense that people have just become basically more disinhibited um, would be a way of maybe summarizing it. I I talk about people being more brash and bold as they they go about their lives, as they interact with others. Um, And so that then we see reflected, I think, in the fact that people will... Observe that uh, there's been a, 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 an increase in incivility in terms of just everyday personal interactions, you know, things as simple as as, as tailgating um, or, you know, that, those kinds of, of very everyday occurrences. Um, a, a, but then I also do describe the way we might see this as maybe a pattern of a bit of a broader connection to antisocial attitudes and, and behaviors. Um, and so I do trace some of those in terms of the attitudes people express with respect to, um, um, adhering to social norms and and rules such as, you know, is it okay to lie in your own self-interest or not? And suggesting that that's become more prevalent over time that people say, yeah, it's okay sometimes to lie in your own self-interest. Or even to, to break, you know, laws like, is it okay to cheat on your taxes? um, or, or bribed someone in the course of someone doing their, their duties. So all of these things have shown sort of more, um, uh, a rise over time. in the number who think these kinds of things are, you know, they're, they're acceptable sometimes. Um, and, and so I describe that, that as a bit of a rise in antisocial attitudes and, and behavior. Um, another area, I, I get into has to do with the idea of people being more impulsive in in terms of their their lives, um, again connected to the idea of disinhibition, um, and so they'll they'll you know they'll do things. I mean I, I already mentioned the example of consumer behavior that some you know it's more common that people they might you know basically spend more than they have um, and find themselves Ooh. in trouble in debt um, and and so forth, or and you know also
1: talked about, about relate relations. You also talked about relationships and divorce rates and things like that. Um, yeah, as related.
0: That's right. I mean, I suggest that if you have this kind of rising incivility in terms of everyday interaction, that it, it, it does have an impact on relationships. Um, I, I and it, what I do in places I cite, um, other authors and their findings. So I, I mentioned, for example something that's um, for social scientists kind of a well-known work of, of Robert Putnam um, in his his well-known book Bowling alone he talked about declining uh, social trust so people are less likely to say they trust others around them and that's something that's kind of ebbed over the course of, of a long period of time um, those kind of connections and relationships but but I do also offer some impressionistic, Evidence. I mean, I don't have. I can't say I have really hard data. Um, we do know, of course, that you know, divorce rates have have increased uh, dramatically over time. And normally, we would just say, well, that's just because it's become easier to get a divorce, and so you know, people just are free, of course, to leave unhappy marriages. But in a more sort of sort of speculative way, I wonder though if. If the quality of the relationships, you know, may have suffered as well, people's willingness to kind of engage in the kind of, you know, cooperation and negotiation that's necessary, or are people more likely to kind of, you know, express the anger and the frustration in ways that causes the relationship to to break down. So I say, you know, it may be that that may also be a contributing factor to to rising divorce rates is is the fact that people are bringing these more adolescent attributes to their relationship with their significant uh, other.
1: I I really like how you explore all of these different ways that this big idea or concept might uh, give a different lens to think about many issues that are going on right now. And of course, none is more salient right now than things in your own uh, discipline in political science. I mean, the current political climate I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how this idea relates to the current uh, place we find ourselves in uh, politics.
0: Yeah, I could probably. Uh, it is, you know, it's all obviously it's it's consuming all of us at the, the moment, even up up here in Canada as well, as we wait to see what happens in uh, on November third. Um, but um, I guess a couple of points I would make there. Um, so one of the other elements, which I didn't really mention around the, the idea of our becoming a more adolescent uh, society or more, at, or more adolescent in our, in our adult ways, another has been this kind of great shift towards the idea of, of wanting to kind of be entertained and to enjoy and find, enjoy the fun things in life, um, and that this has been kind of a, a change that's taken place gradually as those adolescent attributes have become a more dominant feature of, of adulthood. Um, And so on that note, I would then sort of extend that to say that this idea is that that entertainment has actually become so dominant that it's it's sort of tended to infiltrate all aspects of our lives, not just when we're off having fun doing something that, you know, is clearly meant to be for entertainment, but even things like politics, that politics, the world of politics and entertainment have become intertwined. Um, And we kind of look upon politics sometimes as a form of entertainment and, and. There are actual, you know, tangible connections between, you know, television shows that are more about, um, you know, sort of late night comedy shows that are primarily about entertainment. Yet that's where an awful lot of political news is presented and where some people, an awful lot of people learn about what's happening in politics. So this kind of meshing of the entertainment and political worlds. Um, And so in terms of what's happening now, I would say that, you know, Donald Trump's rise to become a, a viable candidate. And then, of course, actually win the uh, twenty sixteen presidential election. I think I can. I would link it to that general trend in part um, that the fact that, of course, that he actually got uh, the, the attention he did when he first announced his candidacy. You know, he had come from the world; he was coming from the world of celebrity. He'd been on reality TV, and now, next thing you know, he's getting such huge attention um, because for that reason, and and the and the fact that he was choosing to run and the kind of things he said had a kind of entertainment value, which mainstream media found it then appropriate to kind of cover. So he, he immediately vaulted into a, a leading position. Um, and I think we can blame that, some of that happening on the fact that our, our politics has become so, as I say, underwritten by, by entertainment qualities and values. Um, but the other the other big piece I think for me would be when I, I talked about the idea of of incivility and antisocial attitudes and behavior, and and of course you know obviously Donald Trump I'd say embodies a lot of these these qualities um, in terms of his personal way of being, um, not just his politics. Um, you know that he's 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 kind of he's a bully. Um, the, the names he labels he attached to his political enemies were kind of very derogatory, obviously, sure. and he, he, he encouraged, um, you know, violence at his political rallies, or he encourages, tacitly encourages violence amongst um, um, supporters out there in the country at, at various junctures in his presidency. Um, and that kind of then carries, obviously, I think, as well into his his disregard for norms, for social norms, kind of I think carries into his disregard for political norms for, for legal norms. Um, You know, that he, he kind of is very transgressive individual. And I think there's been kind of a, uh, an appeal to followers that, you know, that they see that. And, and and frankly, I guess the kind of people that he appeals to, I would say maybe have more of some of those transgressive qualities themselves in terms of their attitudes and their values. Um, And, and those, again, I would, I would call, things that have a more adolescent quality to them. Um, and I certainly wouldn't be the first to, to say Trump, you know, is not fully adult in the way he acts. I think i must have a list of a hundred references where either a columnist or a book or what have you, has said that Trump is kind of like a man child, or he's more like an, a teenager, or you may remember, um, when there was a big demonstration in London against Trump's visit to the country, uh, they, yeah. they made a big baby. Trump yeah. limp, limp right, so that's kind of the image of, of what Donald Trump Trump is. Um, so I would I would concur with all that, and I think yeah, my analysis kind of talks about the the background social and cultural change that that made it possible for for Donald Trump to become president of the United States.
1: Well, and that also makes me think about, and I know you mention it or discuss it a little bit in the book about, um, you know, the cliques in high school, these groups that are, um, um, you know, grouped around specific identities and how that may also play into um, groupishness and incivility and thinking about the current political climate as well
0: yeah, yeah, I hadn't really made that, that connection myself. It's true but I do, I do talk about the, the role of, of, of cliques or we say cliques in Canada. that's one of those American Canadian differences. Um, but, um, but yeah, you could you could draw some of those connections. I do talk about it sort of as the idea that, that you see this kind of emergence of particular pockets of, of teenagers who maybe adhere to a certain way of adolescent being, which then for those individuals becomes particularly prominent. Um, you know, those who are more um, lean more towards sort of r- rule breaking and, and that kind of thing, maybe in a more almost delinquent crowd. Uh, and then others, maybe more in kind of a crowd that's more expresses high levels of openness. So they're kind of, you know, very into different music and ex- different experiences and, and that kind of a thing. Um, so I think that that was part of what happened through the, the adolescent experience. But, um, but yeah, I hadn't really made that connection to the, the contemporary political arena, but it is an interesting one.
1: Well, so that's some pretty serious outcomes that this is connected to that we think of as social problems or negative aspects. But you also think um, this trend is not without its benefits. So what are some of the positives that have come out of it?
0: Well, there's there's sort of number one thing I guess is that, um, I, you know, I suggest that that an, one important adolescent quality is to be a more open individual. Openness to, uh, is one of the Big Five traits, um, and I, I suggest that that is actually an important driving force between the way in which our society has become more open minded, um, more tolerant, uh, more interested in diverse experiences and diverse individuals um, and I suggest that that you know at this adolescent quality is something that as I say it's slowly seeped into adult society and it's reshaped the way we look at these things and so um, and you know and that may sound again if we're talking about the current political situation obviously we, we see the rise of intolerance and and conflict around on that score um, but if we look at the long haul you know, back from sort of the early part of the 20th century through to the present day, obviously, we've made huge progress in terms of issues relating to tolerance and, and equality for for marginalized groups, um, including, of course, women, uh, racial minorities, cultural minorities, um, LGBTQ um, individuals. Um, so so to my mind, this is 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 a really major advance that uh, I would link to to that important adolescent attribute. Um, another one which I suggest in the book that we might connect as well is that, that um, and here I draw on the work a little bit of uh, Richard Florida, um, and this is in the realm of economics, um, and so Richard Florida has described the way in which um, the economy of, uh, of the U.S. And, and other developed countries, but he focused on the U.S., um, has, has been transformed by the rise of what he called the creative class, um, and that this is people then who bring kind of an open mindset, um, creative dispositions and desires to the workforce. Um, and, and I suggest that, you know again, we could see the way in which those adolescent quality of openness has been important an important driver of that sort of rise of a creative class over the course of time, which, which has created both sort of happiness for people, but also a more prosperous uh, economy. Um, So that's sort of the key uh, quality I focus on. And I see, again, it having fairly wide-ranging effects um, on, on modern society.
1: So far, we've been talking about adolescence and high school as if it's a monolithic experience or just a general process that everyone goes through. But as we know, people have different experiences. And I know you discussed that. Um, In your book. So I'm kind of curious to uh, also mention that the difference in experiences based on um, um, race and uh, SES, uh, socioeconomic status, and um, also maybe uh, thinking about uh, politics and how conservatives and liberals may go through, you know, have different uh, reactions to this. So um, can we talk a little bit about uh, those differences?
0: Yeah, um, it's it's certainly that where it presents an important kind of nuance that you could add to this uh, to this argument I make, which is about which is kind of obviously kind of sweeping in its uh, in its approach. Um, but certainly, I, I do talk a little bit about how in those in those early years of, of high school that it would have been certain groups who would have been more likely to be to be attending, um, and that there certainly was division and segregation uh, with respect to, to race that would have um, you know created obviously a very different experience for for whites and, and blacks, um, and so. I, I don't, you know, I don't, one, one could in interesting ways try to trace the, the impact of, of those different experiences on, you know, again, the kind of adults that people uh, developed into. I don't really try to do that in, in my book. I do kind of acknowledge that, you know, obviously there were, there were differences and divisions, um, but I do end up focusing more on, you know, the broader impact and effect of this, this adolescent experience that people were, I guess, experiencing in varying degrees but which eventually, as I I suggest, have these very um, wide-ranging effects. Um, So, yeah, so in in terms of liberal and conservative, um, I guess I'm curious, maybe I'll come back and just ask maybe a little bit more about what you're thinking about there in terms of uh, what that might might consist of in terms of a different experience for conservative and liberal uh, teens.
1: Um, yeah, I guess I was just thinking about the different orientation toward values or, um, uh, um, how, well, (laughs) I guess I need to think about it a minute. Um, I guess I was just thinking about the differences in conservatives and liberals toward general values and, um, even toward openness to experience, with uh, which Jonathan Haidt, when he's a moral philosopher at University of Virginia, and he talks about how there are sort of different liberal and conservative channels of thinking about morality, and and um, this idea of experimentation or openness to experience for uh, is typically different for liberal, liberals and conservatives. So uh, I was just curious if you thought it affected everyone kind of everyone had a similar orientation to it or.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, I see where, yeah. And I, I, I am familiar with, uh, with, with his work and, and, um, so I guess I, I would, you know, I guess I would say, you know, of course, if we're talking about young people, um, being in a, in a high school setting, um, you know, we can't treat them as a monolith. Like there's obviously a lot of variation and difference within, within that. Um, and so, um, I mean on the whole I guess what my book is mainly arguing is on the whole those young people would be more open than, than the adults that, that are you know in their society at that time uh, they would have higher levels of, of openness but there would certainly be yeah pockets of, of adolescents within that setting who would be more conservative in their orientation and would not be um, as inclined that way um, Of course it would of course be interesting if this is becoming a much more kind of focused kind of study to see you know what what happens to to those young teenagers in that that context uh, how much are they influenced by by one another uh, how much was that the case uh, historically um today in today's politically polarized world is it the case that the you know there's much more clustering of adolescents around their actual basic values along these lines so that they don't actually really come into contact with others of the other view as, as much. Um, so right. I can certainly see it. it's, it's certainly an interesting question and um, how it might spin into other kinds of, uh, of research, um, again, around this idea of what are the differing socialization experiences people might have in, in, in different, for different individuals and also across different time periods.
1: Well, one theme that I noticed in the book that I thought was very interesting was parenting. So um, you, it, it seems to run throughout from overall influence of parents versus peers on adolescents to the effect of changes in parenting styles. I think you say around the 1970s, we see a change in parenting styles um, in part based on the influences of those parents from uh, these same um, factors. Uh, to the decision uh, today among the younger generations on uh, whether to have children. So I was curious why you focused on this particular theme throughout the book.
0: Uh, well, I guess, I guess since the book is, in a sense, what it is about, although I don't label it that way necessarily, is, is about the idea of the socialization experiences, or maybe more broadly, just kind of the factors that affect who, who we become. Um, and, and always, obviously the, the way we're, we're socialized that the people and groups that influence us, that's, that's what we really need to, to learn more about. Um, and I guess the traditional view, I think of, of socialization in the, in the very broadest terms was that we would tend to be influenced obviously by our larger society, by just kind of the prevailing norms and assumptions and beliefs which would, you know, filter down and affect people and, and socialize them. But in a more specific way, of course, our parents would have a very big impact as well. So they would, you know, impart uh, their values and beliefs and try to help us to, you know, to to uh, be be the kind of adults that who will be happy and successful and contributing members of society. So so parenting looms large, I guess, in traditional views of of, of socialization. So one of the ideas that I present relatively early in the book is is, an, is the idea that challenges that, that viewpoint. Um, and that that I mentioned earlier, the work of Judith Harris on the, the nurture assumption, because what she mentions or points out in her book is that um, we've learned from studies over the last 20, 30 years that the impact of parents on their children, a very substantial amount of that, even with respect to kind of Personality traits, the kind of people they become in terms of basic values and so forth. An awful lot of that is actually a genetic impact that these big five personality traits that about an awful lot of that, about 50%, I guess they would say, is involves the inherited contribution from from parents. Um, so, so what Judith Harris does, I find it's a very intriguing thing she does then is to say, okay, it's true, of course, then that, that children do end up a lot like their parents. And we've always taken that to be evidence of the fact that they're socialized by their parents to be like them, but she flips it around and says, actually an awful lot of that is, is simply the genetic impact of, of uh, through, uh, through personality traits. Um, and then, and so that then is what helps me in developing the argument that this is partly why those adolescent peers are so important and and because they are the individuals around us who are exerting the kind of environmental influence during the formative years of of teenage or teenage years. So that, so, so at the start of the book um, the parenting is kind of being brought up because it has to be addressed, but it's through, through the, as I say, the work of these other, other uh, scholars, uh, it's kind of being pushed to the side a little bit. Uh, but then later in the book, I do come, come back to it um, and I start to talk about some of the changes that, that, that have occurred um, and uh, it, or it, probably in about the last, um, we're talking about the last 40 years or so, uh, maybe 45, 50, sort of in, in the 1970s, 1980s, that, that, and, and the argument I make there is that, okay, um, by this point, our society had become more adolescent in its perspective and outlook. Um, uh, but one of this meant then that, um, it started to be the case then that people started to be a little bit more skeptical sometimes about whether or not they actually wanted to be a, a parent. Um, and I right. sort of make the point that one of the most important adult responsibilities that traditionally, and, and today is the idea of become, becoming a parent, having kids. It's, it's something that obviously is a huge, huge responsibility. Um, so I sort of make the case that at that point. We start to see more people questioning whether that's what they want to do, and I, I do suggest that again, these these adolescent qualities are having an impact on these decisions, um, and that in fact, what I end up arguing is that that it's the people who are still the most adult like amongst us <laughs> who retain mm-hmm. some of these traditional adult traits and personalities, and so on, are the people who are most likely to decide that they want to they want to have kids. Um, and, and so there's kind of a shift then that takes place as a result of that in terms of both, well, the parent who, who are the parents and also who are the, who are the kids and what do the kids look like? So it's it, the end of the book takes a slight sort of a different, quite a different turn in a way, in terms of the idea of the dynamics of these, this evolving adolescent attributes and, and the impact on adult society.
1: Well, and parenting is kind of an interesting chicken and egg Thing around adulthood, right? Because um, people are having children later in general, um, as a general trend, and um, parenting could also influence adult behaviors. So there's, uh, it, it those things might go hand in hand in some some res- in some sense.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, once you become a. a, a... Parent, you you grow up fast. Some would say,
1: uh,
0: so there there is that um, as as well. So so yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of a, additional area to certainly to to reflect on when we think about how things are in the current day. And and there has been this idea too that um, you know ever since the probably about the 1980s that that parents became a lot more kind of focused and invested in parenting. That they mm-hmm. kind of had a bit more of a laissez-faire approach maybe in the 60s and maybe especially in the 70s and then uh, at some point that kind of got turned around and, and parents started to become much more kind of focused on their kids and of course the idea that you know we over overschedule their lives with all sorts of activities that are that are meant to prepare them for for doing well in life and that kind of mode and mentality is certainly something that's that's a very real phenomenon of the last you know number of years
1: now for a lot of the book it felt like you were foregrounding, you know, the stage of life that is adolescence and you talk about different periods of time. But then at the end of the book, I really felt like you were focused, you you start talking about millennials. And I really felt that uh, aspect that was about the generations of the 20th century, from the greatest generation to the baby boomers and Generation X millennials. And um, you, you say that millennials are, are different. And I'm curious, what, what's different about millennials and why? What, what do these differences reflect?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I guess, uh, so here, my starting point, as I say, I often was drawing on sort of some popular works that were highlighting important social trends and, and different areas of knowledge. So here I, 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 you know, I picked up on the works of Millennial Rising by, uh, by Howe and Strauss, which was really the first book to, to, to pick up on the idea that the millennials were a, a somewhat different generation from the, the young people who had come before them. And, and they're writing this around the year 2000. So this is when the millennials are just hitting uh, about 18 years of age by their definition, um, becoming adults right at the turn of the millennium. Um, and, and they basically argued that the millennials were, you know, were turning out to be quite, you know, upstanding and, and in their, their attitudes and their behaviors that they were, they weren't as kind of impulsive and, uh, incautious, um, as, as young people had been in the past. And in fact, they were quite stalwart in their, their attitudes and. And they even speculated whether they might become Amer- America's next great generation because of these kind of qualities they seem to uh, embody. Um, and so they cited, you know, a number of different trends that we, we had that had been seen over uh, the 1990s. Um, and so, for example, the fact that the crime rate um, among young pe- in general, but among young people had dropped quite, quite dramatically. Um, things like the use of, of substances like, well, smoking or drinking, that these things were declining among, among young people, the millennials. Um, or the teenage pregnancy rate, the way that had dropped and, and quite dramatically uh, in a relatively short space of, of time. All of them kind of implying that there was sort of more cautious and, and caution and foresight being exercised uh, by, by millennials. So, so I t- I talk about that, and I I mention a few other trends as well, um, or or I look at how they've continued since that time. Um, the fact that the high school dropout rate has has dropped a lot among, obviously among young people, um, uh, and and these kinds of things. So, so then the question is, so so I, I take the view then I, I kind of agree with Howe and Strauss, and there is a whole other perspective that people will complain and suggest that oh, millennials were so. Um, narcissistic and wrapped up in themselves and so on and so forth. I kind of fall much more on the, the How and Strauss point of view, that the millennials are different in these more positive uh, ways. Um, and I, I sort of wrap my, my own language around then and say, you know, basically millennials are at, they seem to be a little bit more adult-like in, in how they act and think. They're still younger. they Or at that time, they're still younger. They're still, you know, do the odd crazy thing, of course. Whatever that might be but but they they're more adult adult like in some way, so then so that's the kind of the puzzle for me is well so why why would that be the case because my book's been about the way in which the society is becoming more adolescent, and why wouldn't that have just just continued with the the millennials
1: yeah so, it sounds like a yeah. course correction in some in some <laughs> respects
0: yeah um, yeah and and so I come back to the this idea I kind of was alluding to a bit earlier um and this gets me into slightly. Dicey water, I will say. I mean, I was a little reluctant to go here, but I, I did do it in the last chapter of the book. Um, but it has to do with the idea then that we do see differences in terms of who's actually having children um, that emerged among you know adults in the, the, um, in the 1970s and into the 1980s. That as I, as I phrased it earlier, um, it's the people, I guess, who are more traditionally adult-like in their thinking and their values and their personality who are the most likely to want to have kids at that point in time, and we, you know, obviously the birth rate itself is dropping quite significantly from what it had been historically. So it's becoming a more selective process as to whether or not someone chooses to be be a parent. Um, and so the argument I make, and this is it's, it's a little con- it would be a little controversial, but is the idea that um, again, because of the genetic transmission of personality traits, that in fact um, the the parents. The people who are having children around this time period were were passing those more adult like tendencies on to their children. And this is partly the reason why we see the millennials um, emerging as this more kind of a little more cautious, conscientious uh, kind of generation who kind of want to follow the rules a bit more and and do the right thing. Um I, I make that linkage as to who their, their parents actually were. And if, and, and I, as I say, I'm, I make a connection to the genetic uh, transmission of, 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 of traits. I do also then add on that, of course, at the same time, these parents, if these are the kind of people they are, they're also the kind of parents who probably were engaging in those more intensive kind of parenting practices. Like, let's really focus on the on kids. Let's make sure they're doing the right thing. Let's keep them on the straight and narrow. So I end up sort of saying it's probably a bit of a combination of those two things. It's both kind of a, a genetic um, uh, nature argument around the millennials and who they are. And it's also kind of a nurture argument around the way they were being parented. and That, those, that combination was probably pretty potent, I think, um, in terms of making millennials a bit different from the young people of, of the uh, of previous decades.
1: I kind of want to shift over and just talk for a minute about the current moment we find ourselves in, where we're all sheltering in place, or many of us are, and um, now there's uh, remote teaching all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, you know, it's not everywhere, but uh, in many places, there's a generational experience happening right now in which um, we aren't gathering everybody in high schools together in the same way that we have been. And even though it may, I I mean, we don't know yet how long this is going to carry on, but I'm kind of curious if you think that this um, moment might have an effect on the development of adolescent culture among those currently uh, in their teenage years.
0: Yeah, that's a really, uh, really good question. Um, I mean, I suppose I could start by maybe a, a sort of a fairly positive viewpoint, or, which is simply the idea that, you know, that today's young generation has gotten so used to living online, you know, before this even happened, that, that they're probably making that transition, um, you know, a bit, bit more easily because, um, you know, they're so used to connecting with their friends all the time through their social media and so on. And um, so that might be a, maybe a more positive perspective um but but it is it is it is important um i mean the lack of of everyday human connection is 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 having an impact on on all of us um yeah i guess it's it is of course one of these things really hard to predict where it might go or what the long term uh, effects uh, effects might be um so so uh, i i guess i don't i don't really have a good answer because it's a t- it's a tricky question and it's um speculating on on the future um, but I, I I don't know, do you have any th- I, I don't, turn it around and ask, I don't know if you have any thoughts but so you think the <laughs> pandemic is affecting people, but you know, maybe I well, can react I
1: think I think I would agree that uh, there is a broader and probably more important, effect on the development of adolescent culture and that is social media and how that changes the our relationships. there, not only with peers, but with family, with parents, um, and, uh, overall in forming identity, um, by allowing people to connect over long distances and things like that and, and see representations of many different types of, um, potential identities. And, um, but the, I've, I I want to get back to your your point about how we need to attend to character, and so we'll get back in the wheelhouse of the book and just say, if um, you know, I'm curious what ideas you 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 give character a very important role in the book, and so I'm curious how we foster better character development. How do we keep the positive things that we've gotten from? uh, having more adolescent adulthood and reduce the negatives.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, uh, this is, again, it's another body of, of literature. So for me, I've, I've done my best to kind of pick up on some of the key points, which I think are, are there. Um, and it's something, you know, that could, could be taken further, but certainly, um, if we, if we accept the idea that, um, that people have, there's been kind of a diminishment of, of qu- traits around conscientiousness and diligence and that sort of thing, um, that, that there's, a, there's quite a literature that suggests that these, these traits can be cultivated. They can be cultivated in, in children and in, in adolescence through, especially through, through educational practices. Um, and so there's quite a lot of innovation there. Sometimes what they refer to as the idea of grit. Uh, right. The idea that grit is very important in terms of both academic and life success and that you this is something you want to uh, inculcate as best you can in, in young people. And so the manner in which classrooms are run um, and uh, it can have have quite an impact. Um, so one author who's who's written, well, Angela Duckworth is, is the one who popularized this idea of grit um, and then also uh, by the, an author by the name of Paul Tuff. Has written, you know, quite insightfully about uh, educational practices and how they are connected to, can be connected to character or um, character development in positive ways. So, so they have a lot of interesting uh, ideas. Um, But the other piece, which is important and uh which back when we were talking about the millennials i didn't i don't think i really mentioned this as much but i think another feature of of the nature of the millennial generation was that in addition to being more adult-like by being more conscientious and careful and so on there was also kind of a bit of a shrinking of that openness quality that they didn't weren't quite as kind of as free and easy and and open-minded in some ways um as as young people had been been previously so that's something that's been a little bit lost and, and so, there I would say if we want to kind of retain and, and build that back up again around the way kids are brought up, um, the idea that we do need to move away from such structured experiences for them when, the, when they're young, uh, that they, you know, there's, there's certainly works that, that highlight the benefit of just free play, free time uh, for, for kids and also the freedom and autonomy to explore the world more on their own. So, you know, letting them be in the park by themselves for for a while, uh, or exploring as they get a little older, exploring their town or city, you know, on their own or with friends, these kind of things, you know, this is hard for parents, because uh, they're they're cautious and careful, and they're worried about all the scary stuff they think is out there. Um, But then that in the long term, these are things that do inculcate those kind of uh, positive qualities of, of, it's both sort of about self-resilience, but also about sort of a more open, free, free mindset. Um, so, so those are sort of some of the, the ideas. And of course that, that has been, and and could be the basis for further, further books. Um, but I've sort of, my book is primarily about kind of trying to diagnose how we, where we are, how we got here. And then I do try to offer a few ideas towards the end about some of the things we might do to try to kind of tackle this in the, in the here and now.
1: So speaking of further books, I know your book has just come out, but do you have plans for future work in this area?
0: Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things I'd like to see is kind of any reactions I have to, to the book. Um, I'd certainly be interested in kind of, you know, taking up, you know, debates that, that might emerge um, if people have criticisms or things that might spin off out of this. Um, I'd certainly be, be interested in, in that. Um, I'll probably, you know, do in the short term, some sort of more commentaries on what's happening in the world these days that are, are connected to some of the ideas uh, in the uh, in the book. Um, but so I kind of kind of a bit of a wait and see attitude at this point, I think uh, it put a lot into the book. It's it's you know, it's not a it's not a 600 page volume, but but it, it, did, it did take quite a lot of time and effort. So I kind of like to see what the reaction is and where I might go from uh, from here.
1: Well, Paul, I have to say I really enjoyed your book. I enjoyed thinking about this big idea and how it might apply um, to all types of of social behaviors and social problems we see right now, as well as some of the benefits that we might get from that. And so, I really um, wish you well. And the uh, in the as the book gets out there and more people um, get to read it. And sure. I uh, appreciate your time today.
0: Yeah, well, thank, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to speak with me, Michelle, and for being an appreciative reader. And I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed chatting with you about it.
1: And again, we are the New Books Network in sociology with books on aging in the life course. On the New Books Network, we've been talking with Paul Howe professor of political science at the University of New Brunswick, about his book fresh out from Cornell University Press called Teen Spirit, How Adolescents Transform the Adult World. Thanks a lot, Paul.
0: Thank you.